Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitra Perovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. On today's show, I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Scott Irwin, Professor of Agricultural and Consumer Economics at the University of Illinois. Scott is a national and international leader in the field of agricultural economics. And today I want to talk to him about the food security implications of Russia's war on Ukraine. Scott, welcome to the show. Uh, Glad to be here. Well, Scott, let's begin first with the kind of overview of the grain markets and how probable is it that this current crisis that we've been witnessing for the last six months can actually lead to famine? We've heard a lot of pronouncements since the war began that you're going to have all these countries in Africa and elsewhere not receive enough food. And and that's why it was so important to open up the Black Sea shipping of Ukrainian grain uh, to leave the country. Uh, But is that really the case? I don't really believe that that's entirely accurate. Let me give you just some ideas, some basic figures I put together this morning to help us think about exactly that question. The total ending stocks for grain right now and globally for all kinds of grain, the uh, USDA in their latest estimates projected that to be a little bit over 800 million metric tons. I mean, it's a huge amount. Uh, that's equal to roughly 30% of annual global usage. So it's a lot. Uh, And that's across the commodities. Wheat is where the big concern is. USDA right now is projecting a 290 million metric ton carryout at the end of our current marketing year. Uh, That's almost 37% of uh, total global consumption. So... It's better to describe this as, with regard to the famine question, particularly with the price run up early in the Ukraine war, that it was an affordability crisis, not necessarily an, a, a total availability crisis. And it was also some logistical, of, of something of a logistical crisis that where those surpluses are located we're not necessarily close to, uh, in particular, the poor consuming countries of the Middle East and Africa. Clearly, Ukraine was a traditional supplier there. And when that got removed, it takes some time for trade diversion. In other words, get the wheat from Canada, Australia, the United States. So to me, that's the, the key way to think about it. I think that in those parts of the world, uh, where there is the biggest concern about famine, that the most important probably consideration down there is in those areas is some of the severe droughts and ongoing droughts that have been in those parts of, of Africa that have uh, really cramped their uh, feedstuff or foodstuff production. So I don't want to minimize some of the human misery that has happened here, but at the same time, we have plenty of grains around the world. And, and this is really important because we often hear in the media that Ukraine and Russia supply uh, something like 25 to 30 percent of the world's wheat exports. But they're actually responsible for a relatively small amount of global production, I believe, together, maybe 13 percent or so. And Ukraine itself, about 4 percent of, of global's, uh, global wheat. So it does seem to make sense that there is a lot of wheat to go around. It's just maybe not going to the right places. Is that because people are hoarding it right now? We know that China is starting to hoard it uh, or has been 
uh, India is cutting off exports. Is that what is, what is responsible for the tight wheat markets? Not entirely. You know, it's always uh, a complicated story, and I don't know how far back you want me to go. But if I could kind of lay what I see as the narrative of what happened, uh, it's probably to understand all of this, I would go back to the summer of 2020. And grain prices were really in the doldrums in the middle of the, uh, because partly of the pandemic and the restrictions around the world, movement, demand had been crushed. Uh, and we had just gone through a period of basically good crops around the world. And then in July 2020, the Chinese just started buying, 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 buying. So up until, up until the Ukraine war, I'd say the understanding grain price movements, uh, it's a combination of what I call China, 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 and then some less than stellar production years in various locations around the world. Both of those kind of uh, conspired to put prices uh, at historically uh, high levels, like before China started buying wheat was probably running around $5 a bushel and then pushed it up about 60% to around $8 a bushel. And, that's and all, all of this happened before the war, right? All of this was 100% before the war. That's what the grain markets were dealing with. By far and away, the most massive factor was uh, China's uh, buying uh, for a combination of reasons, some of it politics with the trade agreement with the Trump administration, some of it because of their own internal um, shortages, and then some of it is they're rebuilding their domestic stocks because it's an important factor. You know, it's very hard to know how much when China's buying. We have a good idea of their buying amounts, but they're very secretive about exactly where it's going. In the U.S., we have good data on the consumption, decent at least, consumption data. Everybody just guesses massively about, you know, how, where stuff is going. You know, it goes into China. It's like a giant funnel in, in global grain markets. Uh, to give you an idea, in corn, the USDA right now is projecting uh, that Corn ending stocks are a little over 300 million metric tons globally right now for the uh, uh, current marketing. Well, it'll start soon, the new marketing year. And China is estimated, and this is a estimate with a lot of debate surrounding it, two-thirds of those stocks, 200 million metric tons. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a huge swing factor what China is doing in global grain markets right now. You know, uh, it's a huge issue. And so that's the first part of, of the story. Uh, that's why we started the uh, Ukraine war already with relatively high by historical standards grain prices across the board. And then, you know, the war hit, uh, and it was all sorts of factors coming into play to drive prices as high as they did. Um, but of course, it's super interesting to me right now as an observer and 
uh, sometimes participant in these markets, that uh, the markets are saying the crisis is all behind us. Prices have all gone back to where they were before the war. And what, what, what do you make of that? Is that because of the deal that Turkey managed to put together between Russia and Ukraine that's now allowing some exports out of Odessa? It, that, that helps. But if you look, the, the big price decline happened well before that. It happened well before that. So it's a combination of things, in my opinion. Watching the market evolve in real time in late February, March, April, May, you know, there's just a series of really unprecedented risks that the market had to price into the price of wheat and corn also. But in particular in wheat, one was, while you're right, on a global scale, Ukraine's wheat production is not that large, but it is, but it plays an outside, outsized role in global wheat exports. So it's important. And there was just great questions about how much, if any, wheat was going to get planted this spring in the middle of you know this massive land war. So the market had to deal with that. And there were, I remember I wrote an article, uh, I think it came out in early April, and it was in Time Magazine. And I said, I wouldn't be surprised if Ukrainian farmers got as much as two-thirds of their wheat planted. I received massive blowback on that prediction at that moment. And it turns out I was too low. <laughs> uh, so that gives you just, I think, a flavor of what we're dealing with. And one that I still think is very interesting looking forward, but it has had an impact, is the markets had to basically bake into the price of wheat and other grains uh, the probability and implications of a nuclear exchange in the middle of one of the more important uh, grain-producing areas of the world. And... So if you want to answer the question of why did the price of wheat have to go up $5, initially, it was just all of these uncertainties basically building in a, a tremendous, uh, what we say in the trade is a risk premium into prices for all of these unprecedented things that in the immediate days and weeks after the war started, the markets just had to try to price in. And fortunately, um, None of the worst of our fears about what could happen, at least agriculturally, did happen, did not happen. And we saw, of course, the same thing in the oil markets with a huge spike in oil prices and then coming down as people started to get more comfortable with the situation. One question I have for you is around substitutes. Why do we talk so much about wheat and you know, potential shortages of wheat, but not consider you know, potential substitutes for wheat like rice and so forth, mm -hmm. that uh, people can still consume to get their needed calories. Yeah, you know, I don't know why we don't pay attention to that, but I guarantee you the market does. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, this is exactly one of the big reasons why um, the price of wheat has, is now sitting right back where it was before the war started, Dimitri. That, as I like to say it, when confronted with this kind of supply shock and global geopolitical risks, you know, what's the job of the market? 
it's really economic economic terms really simple to describe you have to uh, run up the price of wheat in this situation high enough that you discourage usage you, as we kind of, you move up the demand curve. So somebody has to get priced out of using wheat so that you kind of economize on current supplies. And then you run the price up high enough also to encourage substitution of other commodities from other places and closely related substitutes in terms of foodstuffs like rice, which is in relatively plentiful supply around the world. And then lastly, you run up the price high enough that you encourage expansion of wheat production around the world. And is there a lot of capacity for expansion? Certainly enough. There's enough flexibility in the global system. You can't create new acres very quickly around the globe. But even that does happen over time if prices stay high enough, long enough. But you can shift around acreage. You know, for example, you can see here in East Central Illinois, it's not very much, but there was more planting of winter wheat, uh, or excuse me, spring wheat or winter wheat that I've seen in a long time. And it's just a few fields, but we haven't seen those for a long time. So multiply that globally. That's the market's job. Yeah. Run the price up high enough to get those tasks accomplished. And right now the market is saying, job well done. And what role do biofuels play in all of this? I believe something like 40% of U.S. corn is currently used for biofuels. So uh, we seem to be wasting a lot of food on, on things that are not uh, necessarily uh, allowing people to consume the calories that they need. So could we, if push comes to shove, adjust some of those policies easily? I know the Europeans are trying to reduce some of their subsidies already for this um, to help as well. I'm really glad you asked that question. because This is a really interesting question. It'll take a little bit of time to explain because few people understand this. You know, when the crisis, the Ukraine-Russia war started, it didn't take very long for the calls to waive the U.S. ethanol mandate, which is largely, I think, what you're talking about. You know, on the surface, that would seem to be something that uh, might be an immediate response to a world food crisis. But it turns out that it wouldn't make any difference. Uh, Whether you're opposed or not a priori to the mandates for biofuels, we now have more than ample evidence that if you waived it, cut it, we would likely not use a gallon less ethanol in the United States than we do right now. Why is that? Because ethanol is the cheapest source of octane in gasoline blending today. So what you'll see on the people that argue about um, the need to waive the mandates is this is really wasteful because ethanol has less energy value than 
the petroleum gasoline it replaces. That is true. There's no doubt. That's just chemistry. Uh, a gallon of ethanol contains only about two-thirds of the miles per gallon that the equivalent gallon of petroleum gasoline does. But, you know, if you stop there, then people say, well, gosh, this ethanol mandate is stupid. And if we just got rid of it, then we could, um, you know, drivers would be better off and we could then divert all those uh, bushels of corn going into corn ethanol into food production somewhere. It's, It's a good story, but it's wrong. And the reason that it's wrong is octane. What has happened with the rise of ethanol production in the United States in the last 15 years is that refineries have changed the blend stock that they produce out of the pipe of the refineries. They, they CBOB uh, and RBOB are 84 octane blends. And so they've learned to optimize, okay, if all this ethanol production's around, they discovered that it's actually a cheap source of octane. So that uh, if you do, and I've done quite a bit of analysis of this, that so on one hand, you have what I call a uh, energy penalty by adding ethanol into gasoline blends, at least at a 10% blend rate. But on the other hand, you have an octane benefit because it's a cheap source of octane. And you look over, you know, the last 10, 12 years, clearly on average, the octane benefit more than compensates for the energy penalty. And then where this gets really interesting is in the present environment, the price of octane has gone off the charts. I'm sure maybe you hear about in the in the energy sector, you know, all the refined product prices just went crazy this summer, mm-hmm. including the price of octane. So right now would be the stupidest time for U.S. drivers in history to wait to, you know, think in some way ban the use of ethanol because it's holding down the price of gasoline to a significant degree through the octane channel that it provides in in blends. But the bottom line from a policy standpoint is, that's a kind of a sidebar, is that if you removed the ethanol mandate, you wouldn't, and I, I don't believe you would use one gallon less of ethanol, at least in 10% blends, which is the vast majority of the way ethanol is burned in the U.S. There's questions about what might happen with higher blends, you know, how much are higher blends like E15 and E85 uh, necessarily supported uh, by the mandates, in theory, more than E10. I haven't seen any evidence that E15 or E85 is anywhere near economically competitive on its own like ethanol and E10 is. So, but even then, if people are just talking about a one-year temporary waiver uh, the economics say we wouldn't use any less ethanol and E10 and probably wouldn't change much what we do for that short amount of period for E15 and E85. So that's kind of a long-winded explanation, but it's one that is not widely understood in my opinion. And there's that we've actually had uh, a very good test of my argument 
in the Trump administration was something called small refinery exemptions. We've actually tested what I'm uh, arguing, and it all works. Okay, so, so if, if adjusting our subsidies policies for biofuels is not the right approach, is there anything that you think the government, uh, our government or other governments around the world should be doing that we're not doing to improve our food security situation? Well, what's interesting is I do think there's a very interesting biofuels angle to this, but it's like everyone's aiming their ammunition at the wrong biofuel. You know, ethanol gets all the political attention at the very moment we're going through a huge second biofuels boom. But it's not in ethanol. It's on the advanced biofuel side, and it's something called renewable diesel. And just in the middle of an incredible boom, and that has been incentivized, uh, ironically enough, directly by California's low carbon fuel standard. California is incentivizing a massive biofuels boom, but it's on the renewable diesel side, which is made out of uh, vegetable oils and waste fats and grease, but mainly from soybean oil, vegetable oils. And so we've seen a huge run up in global vegetable oil prices in the last couple of years, largely due to this global renewable diesel boom. And it's what I like to call wildly expensive stuff to make. Wildly expensive. Typically, someplace between uh, at least $1 or $2 per gallon more expensive to make than the petroleum diesel it, re- it replaces. So we're talking real money. And so it's not naturally competitive. It doesn't have this blend issue. Now, people argue, well, it's justified based on its carbon mitigation advantages. I'm just talking about what's going on and what affects directly the price of fuels. And there's, there, 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 there's an argument that can be made if you want to provide some relief for pressures uh, in the biofuels arena, you take a look at renewable diesel and vegetable oils. But nobody wants to talk about if you where the waiver would need to be really is not on the U.S. ethanol mandates. It needs to be in the California low carbon fuel standard. And nobody wants to talk about that. If I could add one more point, probably the most important and least discussed thing that can be done in the middle of, to, to really help with global food uh, security and access issues at the present time is to try, and it is devilishly difficult to do, we don't have a very good track record globally of this, but avoid the domino-like process of countries restricting exports, basically hoarding for their domestic consumers uh, and keeping marginally very valuable supplies off of uh, global export markets, like what India did. So far, 
it looked like it kind of got started uh, some of that, and but the prices cooled off quick enough that it seemed like it didn't get going as severely as it did in 2007-08. But this is the number one thing we should focus on when we get these big grain price spikes and there's legitimate fears about famine, increases in hunger among uh, poor consumers around the world. The number one thing we should focus on is preventing, if there's any way to do this through diplomacy, countries kind of panicking to protect their domestic consumers. So I was just about to ask that. So India famously did this, of course, at the uh, start of the war. And do you think they did this because they were genuinely concerned about supply issues for their consumers? Or did they want to disconnect the pricing of the global wheat uh, markets from their domestic prices by preventing exports? I don't really know an answer to that because I don't have enough knowledge of internal uh, domestic Indian politics. But, but I do know it is a kind of knee-jerk reaction to countries around the world when we get into these grain price spikes. It's a, it has a long history, um, and we've not been terribly successful about preventing it. But, you know, you imagine, I mean, it's very simple for people to understand. If we're already facing a situation of tight supplies, fears of further supply shutdowns, and then out of fear, people who would normally be selling into the global export markets, then withdraw and ban exports. That is just literally throwing gasoline on a fire. So um, let's talk a little bit about this this deal that Turkey managed to put together with Russia and Ukraine to allow for some exports uh, of products. Um, One, uh, it's been about a month now since that deal was signed in late July. And you're hearing some rumblings from Russia complaining that the uh, food uh, exports are really not going to Africa where it's most needed. That some of it is going to places like Ireland and elsewhere. Do you know if that's true? And is that a, an issue, um, or, or is that just um, you know how export markets work, where you know Europe is getting um, some of the Ukrainians Ukraine's grain, but um, uh, Africa is going to get it from elsewhere? I, I don't know. I have not. I've, I I do see quite a bit of. Uh, information mainly through Twitter about uh, where particular cargoes are going, but I haven't tracked it personally, so I don't have direct knowledge of that. But I do have a lot of knowledge and experience with the global grain companies, and they're selling to the highest bidder. (laughs) Guaranteed. And so it wouldn't surprise me one bit that the Europeans are getting some of it. And in your estimation, how important is that deal for alleviating some of the pricing pressure on on wheat and other grains? It's certainly been symbolically really important. And I think it's had a larger impact, certainly, than I expected. I am still kind of in wonder that it's worked as well as it has. Um, Well, it's not not clear right now how much um, grain is actually leaving Ukraine, and um, you know it's it's a pretty convoluted process. There's still a lot of mines that the ships have to avoid to get right. it out. 
Um, so they're probably not at the pre-war levels of exports, I'm sure. No, no one, no one is thinking that they're anywhere near pre-war uh, exporting level. That, that, that's certainly clear. But I think I just saw something that maybe they've passed a million metric tons, uh, which is a million metric tons more than I thought they were going to get. Because <laughs> I still don't understand how the uh, uh, insurance for the, uh, you know, the market insurance is working for those cargos. I mean, typically, you know, you can't insure anything that close to that hot of a war zone. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of work with Lloyd's in London to try to make it work. I'm not yeah, sure I'm not sure there was diplomacy back, you know, back channel stuff to 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 make that work. And I'm sure the premiums must just be stratospheric uh, for those cargos. But anyway, uh, bottom line is I I, uh, I was overly pessimistic uh, to date. Uh, I think, but anybody'd have to be concerned that. All of that could just stop literally overnight, but uh, it, it's contributed to um, the decline in wheat prices. I don't think there's any idea about that. It's hard to to know how much, but I I would definitely not put it as you know uh, maybe even a top three factor. Yeah, although it did show, I think that uh, some of the hopes that people had initially, which I thought were very misguided, that somehow rail or even airlift could substitute for shipping. And it just shows you that the, the volumes that you can transfer through um, these massive cargo ships, you, you cannot do right. that with rail. Fuel costs and air would be astronomic. So that's not a, a solution either. It's an important truth. We are dealing with bulk raw commodities. And it's a good lesson in how important international ocean Cargo shipping is to movement of uh, bulk raw commodities around the world. So, last question, Scott, and this was just absolutely fascinating. But if we look sort of towards the future, um, unfortunately, this is not likely to be the last war that humanity fights that might may impact food supplies. So, what can we do both here in the United States and globally to? protect ourselves better against these types of disruptions. Is there anything we can be doing from a policy perspective? Well, this gets back, gets us back to several issues that are really fundamental, you know, how to protect ourselves. We've had in the past various kinds of government operated, what are called buffer stock programs, reserve stock programs. They have an old history in the U.S., but they never worked very well because they were typically captured by agricultural interests who always wanted grain to go in but never come out. <laughs> they were used more to support farmers than really provide yeah. security, right? They, they just kind of get uh, captured politically by somebody. And you can see our how political releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve get. So this is kind of a standard economist answer, but but it really is the right one. In the long run, the best thing that we can do is try to maximize our agricultural productivity, to uh, invest in uh, R&D, public and private sector, that continues uh, the growth of our productivity, hopefully in a, in a more and more sustainable way over time. And that's a remarkable story of how we have done that for the last hundred years. And... Uh, 
I am concerned because we have seen a very large reduction in real inflation-adjusted public sector support, for example, in the United States for public sector agricultural research and development. While China has massively uh, upped their R&D, maybe that will uh, be unnecessary. It will be a... a They've also stolen a lot of our IP in this uh, area too. Right. So that is, I think, the number one thing we can do. And it's also, you would say, if we're looking for poor consumers around the world, number one thing we can do for those countries is to encourage them to have a uh, policy regime that encourages the farmers in those countries. I mean, most people don't realize that the vast majority of the globe's poor consumers are also farmers. So if farmers in those countries, uh, it's not always, it's complicated, but um, you know, improving their incomes and livelihoods means that they, they eat better. So improving agricultural productivity around the world, top to bottom, all kinds of crops and livestock, in the long run, it's the answer. It's why we have avoided the global famines that we have in the last century, and it will be why we avoid them in the next century if we choose to continue uh, the kind of investing in agriculture or technology that we have. So don't give a person a fish, teach them how to fish. That makes a lot of sense. But speaking of productivity, how concerned are you right now about the shortages of fertilizer impacting mm-hmm. that productivity? Because you already have a number of fat fertilizer plants. I think it probably already is. That's, that's, that is a very important question going forward because of right now uh, the knock-on effects of the economic sanctions on Russia, big fertilizer uh, exporter. So there's that. But I think probably beyond the Ukraine war, this is going to be ground zero in the climate and environmental sustainability battle, political battles between agriculture and climate and environmental issues. It's going to center around mainly fertilizers, mainly nitrogen fertilizers. You see it in uh, the Netherlands. I don't know if you've seen the, the farmer protests there where they've announced that they're instituting some very sharp, restrictive regulations on nitrogen use. And it's not something that's talked about that people really have any idea. When I talk about you know the last century, how we have avoided famine largely around the world, not completely, of course, uh, a large part of that story is nitrogen fertilizer. We talk about the green revolution in the 1960s and early 70s uh, in places like Indonesia and India, places that their whole existence have struggled with famine. Well, that green revolution was a combination of the application of nitrogen fertilizers and high-yielding rice and dwarf wheat varieties. And of course, it is produced from natural gas, which is uh, in short supply increasingly because of the war and the prices are going through the roof. There's there's plenty of supplies of natural gas that can be drawn on. But this is going to be something that... uh, I think it's going to be a major political front uh, and will have major implications for agriculture is when people begin to feel the pain and the uh, cost pressures 
that accompany accompany any reductions in, in particular, nitrogen fertilizer use. You can go ahead and choose to restrict those fertilizers, but you're going to pay higher food costs. There's just no way out of that. And any good egg economist, I think, would, would tell you that. And I think it'll be interesting to watch you know, where different countries around the world come on that trade-off. Uh, Europe's already seems like they're willing to accept less fertilizer, uh, higher food costs. Uh, I don't know about the U.S., uh, but uh, there's definitely a trade-off there. And I, the longer run, that's the bigger issue, in my opinion. Well, Scott, this was just so interesting. You debunked a lot of myths that we've been hearing about the last six months of this war, about the true state of affairs in the food markets. Thank you so much for taking the time to educate our audience on this issue. I really enjoyed the conversation and really hope that uh, your listeners do as well. I also want to thank one more person, my very good friend, Patrick Gray, the producer of really terrific cybersecurity-focused risky business podcasts and newsletters. Some of you may know that Patrick has been helping me out behind the scenes with editing these episodes since they began in the immediate aftermath of Russian invasion of Ukraine. He's been instrumental in helping me figure out how to do this podcast medium and an invaluable sounding board for ideas about guests and topics. But when it came to doing a podcast on this critical issue of food security, Patrick deserves most of the credit. It was his original idea, and he has done much of the research for this show. We had wanted to host it together, but couldn't make it work due to time zone differences. Patrick, my friend, it's a privilege for me to learn from you. I look forward to the day when we can host the show together. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and come back to listen to future episodes. Thank you.